Seeing none, all in favor? Thank you. We have no <clears throat> delegations or invited presentations this morning. I'll ask if there's any public input on today's agenda items. Seeing none, we will move forward and we will commence with item 7.2, which is a briefing on the 2019 property assessment for 2020 taxation. Mr. Watson, hello. So now you're on camera, just so you know. You can wave to the media and all your friends. Uh, and I know you would use the uh, microphone regardless, but it's important the mics are on uh, for the live streaming. Good morning, Mayor Karen, members of council, administration, guests. I'm here to give you a briefing on the trends of the assessments going into this year for the 2020 tax year. Uh, every year I, I appear before you to give you an update. And this year, I um, want to kind of just brief you on, on some of the history that's gone on also. So basically when I do the assessments, or assessments in Alberta are basically based on market value and it's an estimation of property's market value as of July 1st of each year. So the assessments that we're paying taxes on for 2020 was based on an estimation of the July 1st, 2019 market value. When we prepare the assessments, we use three different approaches to value. One would be the, the direct sales comparison, and that's used primarily to value uh, condominiums, where it's based on a per square foot basis, and, and we just look at the comparison between the condos. We use the cost approach. Cost approach is a land and building value, and that's used in the industrial park where most of the properties are owner-occupied. And then we use the income approach, and that income approach is used on the retail uh, properties on Banff Avenue, Bear Street, and also all of the hotels. Um, overall, the taxable assessment in the town of Banff increased from $3.088 billion last year to $3.235 billion this year for an average increase of 4.75%. That's the overall change over last year. The residential assessments have increased on average 2. Point, almost 3%. Last year it was almost 13%. So we've seen a leveling off of the residential values. And the non-residential, which is everything other than residential, including the linear assessments, increased by almost 8%, and last year it was 5%. Now, bearing in mind, we always, when we're using the income approach, it's always sort of a historical value, so we use 2018 uh, income for the hotels, so there still seemed to be an increase in the hotels. Value trends have seen a leveling off in most residential areas with a change in value from a minus almost 8% to a plus 11% with the median increase of 2.85%. Uh, 
go to the next page. Thank you. The non-residential properties in town include all of the downtown core on Banff Avenue and Bear Street, the hotels, the industrial properties, and the linear properties, which are the railway pipelines, power lines, cable systems in town. The non-residential, the median change was 4.9, and the average change is 5.8. The income approach is used to value most of the properties where I look at determining a potential income, subtracting from that uh, vacancy and structural allowances, and then the remaining income is capitalized uh, to get a value. In the summer of 2019, I sent out requests to all owners of commercial properties on, on, on Bear Street and Banff Avenue. And from the information that was returned, it showed rental rates increasing between 2 to $4 per square foot over what they were in 2017 when the requests were sent out. I only send out requests every two years. Uh, the reason for that is people were just saying, why do you send, why do you give this to me every year when, you know, it's usually a two to three year turnover. So that's why we only send out every two years. The value process to determine a property, as, we, as I said, we take the net operating income of the property and divide that by a capitalization rate. And the capitalization rate on Banff Avenue is 6.5%. So if the net operating income on the example is $380,000, divide that by 6.5% to get a value of $5.8 million. The Banff Avenue Bear Street retail assessments ranged from minus 8% to plus 39% with an average increase of 8.4 and a median increase of 5.4. Five properties saw increases of between 30 to 40% because the buildings had previously had larger than normal vacancy and this vacant space is now leased, therefore these properties saw a larger than average increase. There was some growth this year with the new Husky service station and two new restaurants and the hotel, so there was uh, definitely some, some growth to the non-residential sector, which brought the average up. So uh, if the growth hadn't been there, of course, the, the average would have been down, which shows why the median is lower than the average. So in town, we have three different types of hotels. There's limited full service and the, and the resort hotels. And for the hotels, we use a three-year average to determine the, the income, where we use 20% of 2016 income, 30% of 2017 income, and 50% of 2018 income. So those incomes are stabilized, and then we subtract for other things such as non-recoverables, reserves, and furniture, fixtures, and equipment. The change in the hotel assessment ranged from a minus 2.3% to a 
to a plus almost 35%, with the average hotel increase of 9.75 and a median of 7.5. So the hotels have increased on average more than the downtown uh, retail sector. Hotels make up about 60% of your non-residential tax base. The industrial property, because most of them are owner-occupied, the assessment for industrial properties is based on a land and building value, and the industrial assessments increased about 5% over last year. So what I want to do is just briefly go over some historical changes that have occurred in town. So including the parks properties, there's about, well, there's 1,968 residential properties, 200 non-residential properties, 84 exempt for a total of properties of 2,252. So I went back to 2013. So I went back to 2013 and the year-by-year -year change um, ranged from a low of 3.6 in 2000. Now this is the taxation year. So in 2013 the average assessments increased by 3.62, following year 8.48, then in 2015 9.54, Saw a decrease in 2016, a little bit of an increase in 17. Uh, 2018, it was up significant 14.5%. Last year, the assessments were up 9.6. This year, 4.75. So overall, since 2013, the average assessments in town have increased by 71 point, almost 72% since 2013. So the year-over-year -year change for residential uh, during the same period, this is just the residential sector only. So in 2013, we saw 1.1% increase. In 2014, 2.13, 15, 2.78. Again, kept increasing uh, with the peak in 2018, went down slightly last year to 12.83, and this year saw a 2.85% increase. Overall, the change in assessment for residential properties since 2013 The, the non-residential, which is everything other than the residential, the, so they saw an increase in 2013 of 8.7%, 2014, 20%, 2015, 20%, leveled off in 16 and 17, went up again in 2018, up again 19 and 20. 
So the non-residential assessments in town since 2013 have seen a 100% increase in values. Now that's driven mainly, of course, by the hotels. <coughs> so the net last slide that I have is what percentage of your total tax base is made up of each category? So in 2013, the residential sector made up 65% of the tax base and the non-residential made up 34%. So since then, we're at the, the, because the residential values did not increase as steeply as the non-residential, right now the share is 50, almost 59% for residential, 41% for non-residential. So the non-residential since 2013 has taken up more of the tax burden in town than the residential has. Um, these figures, most towns in Alberta do not have a large non-residential tax base. I would suggest most have a non-residential tax rate. 10 to 15% of their tax base comes from non-residential. Banff is in a very unique position where it has a higher than average uh, assessment for the non-residential class. So Madam Mayor, that's the conclusion of my briefing and I would like to answer any questions that you may have. Thank you uh, so much. Nice to see you uh, again. We look forward to your visits. Well, depending on the news, but anyway. <laughs> so good news. Assessments are up. <laughs> um, uh, uh, two quick questions. Uh, one, when you send your note out to the retail properties and ask for the rental rates, how's the return on that? Do you get... Okay, for, for the hotels, I get all except one. Oh, wow. Um, that's impressive. About 75%. Okay, that's great. Yeah, it yeah. is. Yeah. Because... Most of the, well, I mean, a lot of the commercial properties are owned by a number of individuals. Some do, some don't, but I, I get a pretty good response. Okay, and, that's good. and able, you know, I mean, we're able to discuss issues before the notices go out. So any property that had a larger than average increase, I've talked to them already. All right. And uh, this actually is probably more directed to Mr. Hughes, and it might be more appropriate in the second agenda item, but I'll ask anyway. Um, are we still sitting at around 70% non-residential to residential in terms of who's paying them taxes? Yes, that, that's been the, the case, yeah. So, the, so we use the mill rate split to, to uh, adjust. Average, the, yeah. yeah. So less than 75%, but more than 70%. Yes. Okay, thank you. Yeah, that's always an interesting <coughs> conversation to have it elected municipal conferences for sure people look at you like you're what <laughs> um all right other questions uh councillor christensen mr watson are there any provincial properties uh in our uh area provincial provincially owned provincially controlled because wasn't there a change in the provincial uh uh tax uh, I, I mr don't gibson can jump in because yeah. i asked that question the other day no there's not no there's not no there's not And I, I just also wanted to uh, 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 
ask you about your availability to answer questions from citizens who have questions on their taxes. Oh, by all means. Um, I, my business cards are at the front counter, and I'm available uh, over the phone, email, uh, any method that they want to, to, to get a hold of me and discuss it. Yes, absolutely. And, and you'll go over individual assessments at, absolutely. at that point? Absolutely. And explain and, and Absolutely, yeah. And uh, if I may, uh, uh, thank you, Joe. Uh, a question of administration. Uh, con considering the, uh, the assessments are going up, uh, which indicates uh, a certain health in the economy, but it also indicates that, that of course, the taxes are going up. Uh, is there any uh, uh, consideration that we can give to those who are uh, in the residences who were on a, uh, uh, a pension or a fixed income or uh, who were on uh, uh, levels of, of income that are not increasing at the same rate as the taxes. Uh, can we uh, make special considerations for, uh, for some uh, uh, income levels? Uh, can we adjust the mill rate past the uh, 5.1 uh, to give a better balance for uh, residences over uh, uh, non-residences? Yes. Okay, we get, I think I understand the question. So, it's just uh, a general question yeah. of what we can do. So we are going to, when we're done this item, move into a verbal report on the impacts of um, the uh, provincial government's uh, budget, uh, which could be answered then, but I do, I, I don't know whether, would you prefer to answer that question then, or do you want to jump in? Because it's, it's directed to administration, it wouldn't be directed to Mr. Watson. Yeah. Sure, perhaps I'll, I'll address those, those questions when I... When, you, when you're presenting, okay. Um, uh, Councillor Oliver. Thank you. Sorry, Councillor Christensen, that was it? Okay, Councillor Oliver. Thank you. Noticed in your presentation that uh, there was really an increase in 2018 in, in our residential assessments. And will you please remind me what caused that? The big change in that year was the land value. The the land values took just a, uh, an incredible increase over about a three-year period. And it was mainly, well, it's all over town. And a duplex lot, I guess, is what I always like to relate to, um, now sells in the neighborhood about $850,000 just for the land, whereas it was 400000 So that is really what has driven the values in town is the, the land component, you know, consistently. A lot of cases, the buildings add no value to, to the land. So it, it was a land component. So for the, for the homeowner who says, I, you know, I haven't changed my house at all, it's the same as it was 10 years ago, uh, and so they don't see the reason for that big increase, it's really because property in the town is selling at a higher rate uh, because people want the land to build on. That's exactly correct. Yeah. So even though you've made no changes to your property, your assessment goes up because the market value has increased. Yeah. If you look around town, any development, they're tearing down 40-year-old houses, you know, to, to put apartments in. And so that 40-year home 
may or may not add any value or intrinsic value to the lot. So that's exactly right. If you don't make any changes to your house, the assessments are driven by the land. Yeah, so, so you're astounded, actually, yeah. by the value. And I, I know people call you with those questions. And how do you explain that? Like, what words would you use? Because I get those questions, too, and I, I want to explain it the best way I can. Basically, it's, it's, it's just a, a increase in the land value because we're in a national park and the town has no way of growing. So the only way you can develop property is by tearing down and building on it. So it, especially with the low vacancy, it, it's, it's driving the value of land up. Thank you, that, that helps. I'll use your words. And I, I'm just gonna look down here. I marked a couple of questions. Is there, um, in some residential uh, neighborhoods, you showed a negative uh, impact yes. this year? Yes, and there what was. What would the reason be for that, do you think? Well, it was, it was a change you know? over year of the, and, and, and it's really in the Middle Springs area where houses were achieving a million dollars. They're not anymore. And so that has led to the decrease. Now, what I did is I, I talked to Sharon why this was happening, and, and, and there's a number of things. You know, the, the increase in the, in the uh, mortgage rates, uh, the stress test, all led to you know, properties being on for, for sale but not achieving what they were asking. And consistently, the values of any property that sold in Middle Springs in 2019 the sales prices were below the assessed value. So it would not be right to try to maintain values that are higher than selling prices. And I know I would have gotten a lot of phone calls had that happened. So when I looked at the sales prices, those were the ones that sort of sh showed a decrease in value. At the other spectrum was the the Valley View properties that showed a, a, a larger than average increase. But typically throughout the town, it was five to 6% increase. And then it's interesting because when you see a change in value in the residential area, uh, you're able to reflect that in the next year's assessment. Uh, but with commercial, it's a staggered impact, right? Whether things go up or down. And will you just explain the percentages again? Sure. Please? With the retail properties on Banff Avenue, Bear Street. We send out requests for rental income every two years. So the, the, the first year there might be a spike and then it would level off or go up or down. With the hotels, we use a three-year average where I look at 2016, 2017, and 2018 incomes. So the hotels are always a year behind because of the reporting. Um, it's very difficult to get information as of December 31st when we have to send the notices out a month later. So mm -hmm. we always use a year um, behind. So with the hotels, I mean, they were at full occupancy for, for three months. What I found with the hotels is that occupancies are about the same as they've been. What has it driven the values or increases is the is the rate increases. Okay. So occupancy is about the same. Rev par is is up because daily rates are up. 
And so if the hotels have a particularly good year, then the year you're looking at, like 18, so that's weighted at 50% of their value. That's correct. And then the year before is 30 and the year before 20. So and so the any change is is modified a bit in terms of the weighting over over the three years, right? So that's correct. Yeah. So if they have a particularly poor year, it takes a while for that to. And and, to and that's why also. a couple of hotels did show a decrease, is because some of them were closed for renovations and modernization. So they saw a, a slight decrease, whereas uh, the ones that showed a larger than average increase. Had, had higher occupancy. Right, thank you. And then just finally, um, when we look at our uh, increase to our overall assessment and our increase in, in residential, how do we compare to the rest of the province? Like, okay. Province sure. generally and municipalities specifically? Sure. I deal with three municipalities in central Alberta also. Um, in those municipalities, there's a, a, a downward trend to values consistently. And, and I would think that most towns, cities in Alberta, because they are dependent on either A, oil, or B, agriculture, mm -hmm. have, have seen a decrease in values. So it's kind of a, a double-edged sword with the town of Banff because we're not dependent on those resource, uh, oil or, or, or agriculture. Um, we've seen value increases, so that leads to a increase in the education taxes because the rest of the province, the, the piece of the pie, the piece of education pie that Banff is paying increases because our values are increasing where the rest of the province sees a, a, a leveling off or a going down of values. So for a number of years, the, the rest, rest of the province has been decreasing year over year, and we've been at least holding the same, if not increasing. So when it, and perhaps Mr. Hughes will speak to this in the next presentation too. So when provincially the educational tax is calculated, as our assessment has gone up, we then pay a greater amount. That's right. Because the province does what's called an equalization process, um, what they do is, is all of the municipalities, the towns and cities, villages, their assessments are all brought to 100%. So if the year-over-year -year increase at 100% um, shows a decrease, then their piece of the pie goes down. So it's what's called an equalization, and, and if the 100% value goes up or down, then the education taxes go up or down. Okay. Thank you for that. That's, thanks for your patience with all my questions. No problem. Councillor Canning. Thank you, Mr. Watson. This is always such a, a great report. I just had two quick questions. One, one you've already addressed in part with... Uh, you just like this stuff. <laughs> I do actually like this stuff. Um, with trends within the residential sector, and, and you mentioned Valley View and, and uh, Middle Springs in particular. Um, have you seen any trends within housing types? So did, uh, did apartments or condos have a, was affected in one way, single-family homes affected Good question. in another way? The, the um, condos in town increased slightly less than the duplex single-family in other areas. Like, do, like, the typical duplex 
outside of Middle Springs probably saw about a 4 or 5% increase, whereas condominiums, some saw zero, some saw 3 to 4%. So type, yes, and location, yes. Okay. No, that, that's, uh, yeah, I think that's really See, interesting the, as the, well. The problem is in, in the higher density land, you know, it doesn't matter what, the only time that the building adds value is if it's a substantial improvement to the, to the land. You know, just a typical 40-year-old bungalow really has no intrinsic value to that land. Mm -hmm. So in that case, it's more the zoning of the land that has, has increased where the higher density land has increased more than the single-family land. Well, just this is probably outside of your purview, but one thing I've thought about a lot is with Tinu and other residential uh, rental buildings coming online, whether or not that has taken people out of the lower-end condominium buying market and whether or not that's had, a, had an impact. And I'm not sure if you have any information on that. That's probably outside of your scope, but it is something that I've certainly have considered as to whether or not if there has the prices been dropping on the lower end of the market, in part because not as many people are in that market now. There's not that many sort of lower end. Yeah, true. <laughs> you know, if you, if, yeah, it's a relative term. It's a relative sure. term, yes. You know, I, the, the, the entry level price is about $350,000 yeah. to get into a studio apartment. Um, but definitely, getting back, apartments have definitely seen a higher than average increase because vacancy and and rentals have increased significantly to the apartments. So they saw, in some cases, up to a 10% a increase in value. Fair enough. And then just the other quick question, too, was um, in your analysis of the non-residential um, properties, you used a, a capitalization rate of 6.5%. I'm just curious as to why you use that number. 6.5% is pretty typical for investment-type properties. Outside of the downtown core in Calgary, they're using 5 to 6%. So that's sort of a, a, a number that is, is used for, for um, uh, income properties. That's what the market is looking at is what they're being sold for. Okay, so it's more of a market-driven... That's exactly right, uh, yes. Rule of thumb, maybe, as I yeah. kind of... That's right. You know, because there's such few properties in town, you know, one sells every five or six years, and so the way that we look at it, we know what the rent is, we know what the sales price is, so if you divide the rental rate by the sales price, that's where your capitalization rate comes from. So, if, you know, if property sells for six million and they're getting... $300,000 income, that's a 6% cap rate. Right. And, and have you seen that then? So you feel, you obviously feel, obviously, we yes. don't have a lot of yes. non-residential properties sell. I think we know that in town. But at least as far as an industry standard, is that pretty? That, it, yes, that's, that's exactly. You know, and I, I look at what Canmore is using. I look what Cochrane is using. You know, the small uh, communities around Calgary to see what they're doing. Because some of People are buying the income stream, mm -hmm. and if, if the building is occupied with good tenants, then it has a, a higher than average uh, sales price. Exactly. 
Okay. No, that's uh, that's very helpful. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Other questions for Mr. Watson at this time? Councilor Poole? Do you like my head? Okay. <laughs> I was waiting for Peter, and I'm like... <laughs> Thank you. Thanks very much, Mr. Watson. Again, very, very interesting presentation. My first question goes back to Councilor uh, Oliver's queries about the reasons and ways to describe the rise in residential uh, taxes from that period that you mentioned in about 2016 through 2018. Um, my question on this is, is the rise in the value of the land that you spoke about also a response to any of the public policies of the town of Banff? Another way might be, how would changes in zoning affect the land values? <clears throat> well, with, with zoning, the higher the density, the higher the prices. So if zoning change in the market will show that it increases, that's what I follow is, is what the, is it a change in zoning or, or is it more of a, of a demand for housing? And I can't answer that because uh, I, I don't think that Zoning, yes, because it, the, the higher the density, the higher the value. And in areas where were you able to see changes in land values rising more in those areas that were, had been subject to zoning changes and less proportionally in areas outside, or did the effect of zoning bleed across to other areas? Well, I think that with the allowance of, say, uh, suites behind, you know, the, allowing a, a, a secondary suite, that definitely has increased values. So, you know, for example, the land value in a spot which wouldn't have had any increase in zoning would be something like Valley View that you spoke of, whereas an area in residential uh, uh, say the, the muskrat area, which had strong increase in zoning density, I presume that you've been able to compare between those two and see whether the land values have increased more where the public policy led to increased zoning. That, I guess that's what I'm getting yeah, at. Uh, Do I, we have a way of explaining to the ordinary person who asks, why did my taxes go up? And if the answer is because those members on council increased the zoning density, that's different than it, it, the market is a representation of that change, isn't it? Yes. So, oh, sorry, if I could just jump in. We keep jumping between assessment and taxes. Mm -hmm. So it is, uh, Frank looks at, at assessment only, um, which, is a, which is a separate tax or a separate issue. It can lead to taxes, but they are separate. I, I understand that the, the tax base is what I think Mr. Watson referred to, and if I use tax, excuse me, I should have said tax base for that district. Um, thank, thank you. That, that helps me understand that. Um, secondly, if I could ask about the, the valuation method um, in 
there's a couple of areas where we have public service zones and or, or commercial activity in a public service zone that is grandfathered in. Um, uh, so those might be, there might be commercial uses, but it's not a commercial downtown or commercial accommodation district. Are you able to, you, do you use a, a cap rate way or an income method? What's your valuation method for those types of properties? And there's only probably a handful of them, yes. and yes. I presume that you've looked at them. Public service is probably at the lower end of the values in town because of the restricted use that it can be put to. Um, if there is a commercial building on it, I look at the rental the same as I would any other commercial properties. Uh, if it's a residential, um, it's again a land and building value, and but again, it's at the lower end. So if a duplex lot is worth 800, public service lot would be maybe half. If I can clarify my question, it's more about the commercial uses in there where we've grandfathered them. And the Could you be more specific on properties? I, I don't know that I'm allowed to. Um, See, I'm I, can to think of, I, I can only think of three or four okay, commercial properties. I'm just going to let Mr. Yeah. Gibson jump yeah. in so we can get I, some clarity. I, that's why I'm being very vague on this, and I'll be really precise that my question relates to those more than one property, and I believe that in each of the cases that's an owner that owns the building and thus, and there's not been a sale of that building in a long time. So I wonder how you do the evaluation of those. Sorry, I'm just, I'm just so, gonna let Mr. Gibson jump so in. So we could, if, if council would like to go into camera to ask that question, but it, you're correct, you shouldn't ask uh, specific details about a specific assessment within town in a, in a public meeting. Um, could just add though, what, what Frank has said is that the commercial portion of that is looked at the same way as any other, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, Frank, there might be a difference in cap rate because of the type of? There might be, but there might be more of a difference in the rental rates. Yeah. So. Because of location. So I can, I can find out a specific answer for you offline, if it's important well, I, to know I th now. I think, can... I think it would be fine to ask offline later. Uh, um, so as to avoid us going in camera, but I, I think fellow councillors might be interested in that. But I'll, I'll move on to my next question. Um, the mayor asked a very interesting question about response rate of those commercial uh, businesses that responded to your question about the uh, income they've had. Um, and you said there was very good response from the hotel industry less of a response from the other commercial operators. Could you give me a sense of how many of their, you know, what fraction of the retailers or what fraction of the restaurant properties might have responded to your request for I'd revenue say, info? Yeah. I would say I get 80% response from the, from the retail owners. I mean, it's, 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 I can count on one hand the, the, the owners that don't respond, and it's just simply that if they don't respond, they have no right to appeal. 
No, very good. Um, so if people are asking us if they should respond, we say, if you respond, you have a right to repeal. <laughs> That's exactly, I mean, it, it's in their best interest because then they know what I'm using to determine the assessment. It is, it is their income. If they don't give it to me, then, then it's my guess. Um, could you, uh, my next question relates to the variable that you describe in your analysis of the valuation of hotels. And it seems that the expense ratios that you quote are an important parameter in your understanding. Could you provide us a bit of uh, evidence for these differing hotel expense ratios? Sure. What I do when I ask for, for the request from the hotels, they give me their gross income or you know, what they got from rooms and hotels. Then they give me their expenses. And depending on the expense ratio in town ranges from about 58% to 104% of, of the income. Yeah. Well, depends on how much income they want to take out to support their family, I guess. So what I look at is, is more the, the so I, I, I get all of the hotels, and, and what I do is I use a median expense ratio. So all of them goes in, and at the very end, you know, the, the range, as I said, from 50 to 104%, so the, it's a median expense ratio that I use, and that's what, when I talk to the hotel owners, they understand that. My final question relates to the residential apartment market. Could you give me a sense whether uh, that supply, apart from the Tinu one, whether that supply of residential housing in the rental accommodation where we've got rent, commercial rental properties, um, whether that has what the changes in that, both on the supply of the housing as well as in the valuation of the lands have been? What I found when I sent out the request is that apartment incomes up are up about $200 a month and expenses are down. And so what we're looking at roughly is Apartments are selling for about 18 times, 18 to 20 times income. Any other questions, Councillor Poole? Uh, no, thank you very much. Very helpful, Mr. Watson. Right. Are there any other thank questions you. for Mr. Watson at this time? Just coming out of Councillor Poole's questions, I had, had a couple come up. And it was interesting, the uh, commercial property that if you don't submit your information, you can't appeal. And is there anything provincially where you can comply, like people must comply with submitting information? Or The only, the only way that we could force them to comply would be taking them to court. So there is provisions in the Act to allow us to go to the Court of Queen's Bench to get them to comply. 
Um, it's never been used to my knowledge. It's just that if they if they don't respond, then they lose their right to appeal. And I think we have a, a very high response rate, so there must be a, a, you know, quite a bit of confidence in your assessment based on looking at. Well, I would hope so. Yeah. You know, I, I, I would hope so that there's a certain degree of trust mm -hmm. that I developed over the years, and and those that choose not to, it, it's just because they say it's none of your business, yeah. and, and, and that and that's okay. I just I want to uh, just you said that I just want to congratulate you on establishing that trust. Oh, thank you. Uh, because I I remember when we switched to this method of uh, assessment, and it was you know there was concern in in the community, and and you've done a. I think a really good job of, of your, you know, your requirements for confidentiality and, and building trust with people. And as well as your general willingness to talk to people, because you mentioned anyone that went up greater than average uh, in the commercial area, you reached out to them and have already had discussions with them before they even received their assessment notices. So I think that's a really good practice also. And then uh, Councillor Poole also talked about how zoning can impact uh, assessment. And I just want to confirm uh, with administration, the last time we did a community plan was 2009, and I think there were some zoning changes there as part of that, uh, but I don't think we haven't seen any since then. Is that, is that correct? Yes, around 2011 was the... Uh, sorry, Around 2011 was the last comprehensive uh, changes to our residential uh, zoning regulations. We have done um, minor text amendments since then. Some of those include changes to our apartment parking ratios. Others include driveway widths, and those could be classified as uh, changes in zoning over time. Right, okay. So if there was, our, our charts today start at 2013, so 2011, if there was any impacts from that, it would have been in years that we don't have on the charts today. Well, there may be some latency involved in right. terms of when re point. people realize that, and so it's difficult to sort of make that, that connection. Yeah, thank you. Good point. Okay. All it. right. Thank you uh, very much. I'm assuming no further questions. Thank you, Mr. Watson. Again, I appreciate you being here. Um, and, uh, yeah, you may find thank the you. next conversation interesting as well. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Frank. Uh, moving forward to item uh, 7.1, uh, we'll get Mr. Hughes to give us a verbal briefing on the provincial budget impacts to the town of Banff. Thank you. So maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll address uh, Councillor Christensen's questions to, uh, maybe I'll speak to those first, but I also wanted to make clear that, and, and assessments and, and taxation have been um, interchanged a few times. I want to make sure that it's really clear that just because there's an increase in assessed value doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be an increase in taxation. And uh, and at this time of year, I'm off, often asked these questions. So uh, to make it as clear as possible, there are four general uh, inputs that will affect whether an individual's taxes increase or decrease or stay the same. Uh, the first would be the operating budget that's set by the municipal government. Uh, the second would be the, the requisitions that are collected on behalf of the provincial government. So those are the two main uh, drivers of the overall increase in taxation. And then there are, there's your relative assessed value to, to the rest of whether you're non-residential or residential. 
uh, sector. So how did your assessment do relative to the rest of the either residences or businesses in town? And then there's the mill rate split, which will affect the uh, allocation of taxes between those two sectors. So those four, four things are key in determining an individual property's overall tax change year over year. Uh, and, and again, it's largely relative. Um, so uh, I'm going to speak a little bit about the provincial side of that overall tax increase uh, today. Uh, we, we know from the, the uh, operating budget that was passed in January that the, uh, we had estimated that the overall tax increase was going to be just under 5% at that time. Um, that was based on uh, an estimated uh, education tax levy increase of 9% plus um, the, an under levy of $125,000 from 2019. So there are a few, few things that have happened and, and we, uh, Mr. Watson spoke about the equalized assessment and we now know that our equalized assessment increased much more than the provincial average. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't had a look at the, at the overall, but we know that our education requisition was approximately four times that of the average um, municipality in the province. We, were, um, we had the largest increase in uh, provincial uh, education levies of any municipality in the province at about 16%. Um, between 19 and 20, uh, and in fact, the, the residential increase was uh, closer to uh, 19%. So, and going back to the under levy from 2019, what happened in 2019 was the provincial budget was so late coming out, uh, we didn't know what our requisition was going to be at the time we levied our taxes. We made an estimate based on uh, our relative increase in equalized assessment. We thought it was conservative. It wasn't conservative enough. So we, the under levy uh, from 2019 turned out to be $125,000. So that has to be collected in 2020. So overall, uh, our increase in the education portion of our, of our taxes is, is going to be up about 20%. So what that does to that uh, original estimate of 4.98% overall is it would move it to 7.88% on an average property in Banff. So um, in, uh, historically what uh, council has, has done is um, use the mill rate split to uh, equalize that increase between the non-residential and residential sectors. Um, in, uh, the challenge this year will be that uh, the province in the last MGA review set a cap of five to one on that mill rate split. Uh, in, in order to, you know, based on our current uh, available information, in order to equalize that, uh, that tax increase between the two sectors, it would take a 5.315 to one split in order to equalize the, between the two. Um, the five to one split would mean that the uh, average residential property would pay 10.4% uh, and I apologize, my laptop froze here so I can't get the exact, the non-residential would be about six and a half percent at a five to one uh, split. 
so the good news is <laughs> we were also very conservative on our MSI uh, grant funding estimates for 2020, uh, and it turns out we, we got our actual assess our actual allocations uh, late last week, and they will be uh, there'll be about a million dollars extra in MSI capital funding. It's 60,000 increase in the basic municipal transportation grant and about $6,000 in increase in the um, MSI operating grants. So that is the good news. Um, maybe I'll pause there and see if there are any questions about, um, about all of that. Thank you. I do have a couple of questions, and then uh, we'll go back, I think, to Councillor Christensen's... Uh, oh, right. So, uh, yes. So you, you got yeah, yourself off... Yes. Well, you went yeah. on the right track. You just yeah. sort of... Yeah. Um, so I guess it's just important uh, to remind Council that when we talk about that 7.88% that we're now looking at, and as much as a 10.4% uh, for residents, 2% of that is for our municipal services, 2%. And although that is not the way we often present the information, that is the reality. Um, council passed a budget with a 2% increase uh, for our municipal taxes in 2020. Um, when this first came out, I thought a councillor from Calgary, I was just watching it on Global, um, spoke to it well, where he said, Residents of Calgary, he was referring to, uh, need to understand that they are residents of Calgary, but they are also residents of Alberta. And as the council in Calgary or our situation, we have absolutely no control over what the province does with education tax. We are the collectors. And all we can do is do our very best to educate and inform the public that the tax increase that they were going to see even at the 5%, still 2% was for the municipality. We projected that 3% would be going to the um, province. We now know that uh, much more than that is going. So I just feel it's important to state that uh, and to remind council uh, the budget that we voted on was nowhere near a 10% uh, increase. Um, Mr. Hughes, I'm assuming that the reason we are in the position of being impacted by this decision to the greatest amount of any other municipality in the province, and I know Canmore will be a close second, I assume. Yeah, they are. They are at 15, um, I believe. I'm uh, <laughs> watching body language in the room. Um, my assumption is, or I'm presuming that's because our assessments have gone up more than the rest of the province, which again, shouldn't come as any big surprise. Banff, Canmore, the Valley, tourism-based communities are doing well, and the rest of the province is not. And so it shouldn't come as a great shock that in an economy, in one of the rare economies in this <coughs> province that continues to thrive, our assessments have gone up and that's why uh, we have the, I won't call it the privilege, I will call it <laughs> or that we're in, this, in that situation. Uh, and I guess my only other question is, um, and actually in another conversation this came up, um, the previous government in the MGA final document uh, instilled the rule that a municipality can't go past a five to one ratio. Uh, in my history on council, and probably council Oliver's too, we, we rarely did, but we did have situations. I remember one where we went to six to one. So when that decision was made by the provincial government, we certainly 
you know, kind of took a step back and went, hmm, that may not be great for us. And it hasn't been an issue for the last few years, and, and now it is. Um, what would happen if we went to a 5.3 to 1? Like, we're just not allowed? You know, do we get our hands slapped? What happens? <laughs> Sure, I'll take that one. Um, <laughs> and whose hand get and whose hand would get slapped? Sure. Um, <clears throat> again, because of our structure, it, it it is a little odd. Technically, if we could pass mill rate right now, we could pass uh, a five point three one to one uh, mill rate. Um, the question is, is once the MGA changes are accepted by the federal government and that comes into effect, we would likely have to comply with that legislation uh, once that came in. So that would mean shifting back to five to one if assessment didn't, ha didn't assist us going back to five to one. It could be a big tax hit for our general uh, residential base. So. Um, there is a possibility. What happens if you um, if you were to contravene it? Um, I would assume the province would uh, not allow our tax rate, and we would have to go back and reissue it. But we haven't actually proposed that question right. at this point. <laughs> uh, in time. So, because what's the proper term? The articles of entrustment is that the proper term? So we don't have an article of entrustment that brings the new MGA into full effect uh, for the pro or the the town of Banff um, those uh, that those documents are being worked on and and they may be in place before okay. all right um, and just quickly and I'm not rate. suggesting that I'm actually not suggesting we necessarily do this but um, when you suggested that when the artists of entrustment are signed and therefore the town of Banff like all other municipalities in Alberta need to adhere to the rules in the MGA um, like Retroactively? <laughs> so, so no. Um, however, the MGA says... I hear your caution, Mr. Gibson. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's retroactive as to when the MGA uh, was adopted, oh. or when the province adopted it. So at that time, we were below 5 to 1. Oh, okay. So if you were above 5 to 1, you weren't required to bring it down immediately. You right. were grandfathered in right. uh, for a period of time uh, to bring it back down. But at this point point because it's been so long uh, we would have to look at that so when we bring back the tax rate to council we will uh, have an update on our articles of entrustment um, and, right. and go from there all right thank you uh, other questions for mr. Hughes uh, was that a hand yeah, go sure go ahead Councillor Poole. just to follow up in the mayor's dialogue with the town manager um, it seems to me that the, from what you've been saying, that there may be some authority of Parks Canada to um, adopt one of these articles of entrustment or not adopt this article of entrustment. Could you, through your work on the in, uh, the under the incorporation agreement, where we have this? liaison committee between the town and Parks Canada, could you uh, help us by reporting back as to whether Parks Canada might stick up for us in this regard? Um, perhaps we can bypass this part of the MGA for a while. Uh, 
typically these matters are dealt with with justice um, and, it, and it's really they're whether they should or can apply uh, within the national park but we can we can ask our uh, legal team looking at this whether this is uh, one of those issues that may or may not apply at this point we haven't been uh, we don't know either way uh, and we have uh, had some discussions there were a number of changes made uh, through the Municipal Government Act so the reason it is taking a long time uh, however there is a lot of legislation to make to, to go through with justice so uh, we can bring this item up though for sure other questions I saw some hands down here Councillor Damano and then Councillor Oliver thank you Will we have an opportunity? When does when will we be seeing the surplus, the final surplus amount? That will get reported uh, with the financial statements at the end, the last meeting in April. And when will we be seeing the mill rate? In May. So yes, you, we will we will know what that surplus is prior to the tax rate bylaw being brought to you. Okay. So we could have another conversation like we did during budget potentially. Potentially. Thank you, Councillor Oliver. I, um, I, I, some of us, I, I remember, were at a meeting in Canmore where the province did a presentation uh -huh. on this whole mill rate switch, and I think Larrabee, yeah, first minister of municipal affairs. I, I, I think we were uh, surprised when we found. I, I think some municipalities, or the highest municipality, was eighteen to one. Is that you know? And so that was someone that had a small residential base and, and a big. Uh, commercial oil refinery type type business so it was it was just interesting to see how the diversity uh, in in the mill rate splits at the time and that that I think the majority were more one-to-one -one or two-to-one and that we were a little bit of an outlier for someone who had kind of ranged from 4.5 to 6 at our highest I think so it was just really interesting background information for us to get but when you talked about the grandfathering, uh, I th thought that presentation, and, and it was pre-legislation being passed, so it might not have been what was passed, um, was that even if you were grandfathered when the legislation first passed, you had a certain number of years to work towards coming into compliance with the five to one, is that? That's, is that that's correct? correct, and that's what I meant, just with the amount of time that it has transpired since the legislation's come in. Um, that, that might not be an option. So. Right, and so the the um, the transitioning into the five to one, the date of that would have started when the legislation passed. When the le legislation came into effect, so right. we would have to look at how that would impact us. Would that be from the day that of the article of entrustment mm -hmm. or? Uh, whichever the case is the province might not see that though um, because we've had the notice yes but but again that would be a, a legal matter we would have to look at if it was appropriate okay thank you councillor oh I got to Mano, then Oliver okay councillor Kenny sure uh, thank you mr. Hughes you ran through a lot of numbers there. I just want to make sure I under understand it correctly so originally we were thinking that we were facing about a 4.98% increase and we thought at that time that was conservative and we now know it wasn't nearly conservative enough and we're facing a 7.88% because of this increase in the education levy and that 7.88 would only be 
split between residential and non-residential if we were able to go to a mill rate split of 5.31 between the two. And correct me if I'm wrong in any yeah, I, I just want to make sure I understand. I just want to jump in there too because I think there's a, a good point to be made. The province sets the split on the provincial tax uh, levy. So they, oh, between residential, between residential and non-residential. Okay. Yeah. And there is a much higher increase to the residential portion than the non-residential portion of the, of the education tax levy. Okay. Yeah, thank you for that. So then what we do is use the mill rate split on our, our own uh, municipal taxes to level out the overall. Right. Yeah. Okay, thank you. And so if we are, in fact, limited to a five-to-one split based upon the MGA as it stands right now, that the residential portion of the taxes would face a 10.4% increase. Is that correct? Okay. That's correct. Um, and as Mayor Sorensen said earlier, of that 10.4%, only 2% is from the municipality, 8.4 or so percent would come directly from the education levy. Well, sorry, and yeah. Bow Valley Regional Housing right. and, and, yeah. and others as and well. And so this is where we get into, there's, there's the overall tax increase, yeah, would be, and maybe this, this may make it more clear. When we look at a dollar value, year-over-year year increase in the overall taxes that we'll be collecting. It's about $2 million more that we'll be collecting in 2020 than we did in 2019. 67% of that is coming from the provincial education levy, 31% from the municipal levy, and 2% from the Bow Valley Regional Housing. Okay. So that made, I think that makes it a little more clear, and you can see it by, but in terms of the dollar value increase year-over-year. Year. Yeah, no, it, it does, and, and there's... There's a lot of moving parts here, yeah. and, and obviously not all of the dust is settled just yet because we have to still discuss um, the, the surplus. We also have to discuss the, the mill rates, et cetera. But, but I'm just, to be perfectly honest, I'm a little confused by this whole thing. Where we are just based upon the explanations, there's, again, there's a lot of moving parts. So I think trying to explain that to the average resident makes it even more confusing. Um, but but my, my one comment at this point is, I absolutely agree with Mayor Sorensen's comments around the difference between the municipal taxation and the provincial taxation, and and I think my my concerns about this has been has been mentioned before and, and well documented. So I don't necessarily see the point at this point in regurgitating all that. However, uh, Council, I uh, back during service review, did pass a motion to come back at the time of the mill rate discussion to talk about possibilities of for lack of a better term, decoupling our municipal portion and our provincial portion. And, uh, and I just want to get an update from administration. Is that still online so we can have that discussion at the same time? Because I guess I will regurgitate one thing, and that is the importance of doing our best to indicate to our residents what is our municipal portion of this and what is the provincial portion of this. And so maybe you could just give me a quick update on where we stand with that. Sure, and we, uh, the finance department has been working with communications too about uh, how do we effectively communicate these, these, all these changes, and as you mentioned, it, is, it can be complicated. So we're, we're working on that, and certainly um, my understanding of, of that motion was when we, when we were working on the budget, we always have, or historically have, uh, um, talked about the overall tax increase and, um, and the the desire of council was to maybe move away from that and, and speak about just the municipal portion. And I, I think it's also important to understand, though, that uh, when a tax bill comes, um, residents 
see the overall tax increase, and we don't want we don't want there to be confusion as to when when you know that they only find out that the, the increase is going to be larger than that they thought when the when the ta tax bill comes to them. No, absolutely. Like the the truth is, is a, potentially a ten percent increase is coming. I just want to make sure the residents of our community know what that makes up, like what portion is coming from which level of government, etc. I'm not I'm not suggesting for a minute that we should only obviously deal with 2%, we need to deal with all of it, but just be very clear what, where, where it's all coming from. Right, so it's more of a, a communication yeah, issue. Corey, with the puzzled look on her face? Yeah. So true to what I Councillor Kennedy is saying, I, I'm now, you've, I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> so I, the last number I had written down here was 7.88 mm -hmm. as an overall, and 2% of that was municipal. The rest was provincial, but now Sorry. there's a 10 point something number. What so is that, that number? That was uh, based on the limitation of the five to one mill rate split. The oh. residential uh, tax increase would be 10.4% is there our estimate at this point. So if it was even Stephen commercial and residential, it'd be 7.88, right. but yeah. because we have to do a split, I see. It, it, it's okay. the residents who will pay this. That's right. So or because of more. the five to one, the, the mill, right. That the resident increase would be, can you say it again? What was it? 10.4. 10. 10. 10. And the, and the non residential would be about six and a half. Right. Okay. If we could do okay. a 5.351 to 1, it would be 7.88 7. 7. and 7.88. I see. Okay. Thank you. That's really helpful. Okay. I'm going to let Mr. Hughes respond to Councillor Christensen's questions from before, unless there's other specific questions at this point. Go so, ahead. So Mr. I believe we, we've covered the, the five yep. to one split option. The, the other question was around giving some tax relief to people who may be on fixed income. Uh, and that would, I believe the only mechanism we would have to do that would be through some sort of a rebate program. Um, we are limited uh, by the MGA on the, the mill rate or the tax rates that we can apply to to uh, different assessed assessment codes uh, and I would suggest that it may be if if that's a road that council wanted to go down uh, we might look at um, using the access card program uh, because I think just because someone's on a fixed income doesn't necessarily mean they um, are below average income so I, I would suggest that that's probably the way to go and um, and look at it on an individual basis um, but um, if that's something that council wanted us to explore, we guess we'd look for a motion to that. To that effect. Uh, does any? Sure. Go ahead, Councillor Christians. Thank you. Uh, if I may, then. Mr. Did you want to come in first, Mr. Gibson? Sure. Just if if we're going to talk about a potential uh, rebate. Um, for a sector, I should just explain um, anytime there is a rebate, uh, it, it's funded from a rebate would be paid for through taxes. So it, it should be made clear that if there is a rebate, that would raise anyone not receiving the rebates taxes to make up for the rebate. Um, also, if there is concern about this, uh, it would probably be best to bring back with uh, the tax um, the tax rate bylaw or it could be brought back in advance if, if you're thinking about a sp specific rebate for a section of the community uh, what that would cost what that would look like um, 
but the difficulty is, is it has to be funded by um, the rest of the tax base. So there would have to be some calculations uh, done related to that. But I just wanted to point out that anytime there is a rebate, um, that's collected by the rest of the, the tax base. Well, th thank you, uh, Mr. Gibson. No, I appreciate that, and I can understand that. But uh, the uh, comments I'm getting are from people on fixed incomes, pensions, and that. And I think uh, Mr. Hughes's comments about the access card and the and the level of income. Just because you're on a fixed income doesn't mean that you're uh, 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 poor and, and can't afford it. So, uh, but to explore it, I think, is appropriate. So I would like to make that motion that administration explore a rebate program and how we can base it. And uh, taking your lead on the uh, access card idea, uh, uh, I, I by no means even suggest that I would I would follow through with that. But we need to we need to have some information. We need to explore all possibilities on this. So, Mr. Gibson, my primary my uh, request, I guess, would be that we get uh, a little more clarity on this sector that you're. Uh, looking to assist so um, realizing that taxes is homeowners only uh, is is it homeowners on the access program that you're looking well, I, would, uh, I, w I would think that would be an appropriate start because uh, uh, all homeowners as we uh, understand uh, aren't uh, aren't uh, as financially concerned as some of those that would be on the access program. So uh, to explore it and, 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 and bring back some suggestions as to what we can offer uh, to those homeowners who are on a pension and saying, I can't afford this, how can I keep it going? How can we, how can we assess their income uh, and, the, and their value to see if an assessment is, is or uh, or rebate is uh, appropriate. I'm not suggesting that that there's a sector, but there should be an income level that uh, triggers that. Okay. So your motion stands. Yeah. Ms. Garrett, do you have any uh, idea off the top of your head how many homeowners, if, sorry, people who currently use our access program, would you have knowledge of whether they were homeowners or not? Um, we don't ask uh, with respect to home ownership. We don't ask that question on the application, application form. Mm -hmm. um, my my general uh, understanding, though, is the the majority of individuals, just given our our staff's um, interaction with the client base, would be renters, predominantly renters. Um, certainly, if this motion were to move forward, we, we would certainly want um, to seek direction from Council as to whether or not an asset review would be part of the application process, because of course there are, um, there are um, avenues and tools in place for people who, um, as an example, um, a home equity line of credit is something that many seniors on fixed incomes potentially sometimes would tap into um, should uh, cash flow um, or, or be an issue. That is an opportunity, um, but at the end of the day, we would just need direction on whether or not that was something you wanted us to add to our eligibility criteria. Thanks, Ms. Garrett. Councilor Christensen, I'm not going to support the motion, and for a couple of reasons. Uh, there may be merit in the conversation. Um, I think this is uh, just directing administration to go do this. We, we have a full workload going on this year. Everybody, you know, we've done a strategic plan. We've got a work plan. People are 
already committed. If if I, I'm not, I might be able to support this as a discussion point of service review when we hit the appropriate place. Um, but uh, based, on, it, it just isn't a simple ask. And um, to explore something that is this uh, complex, I would say. So uh, I'm not going to support the motion today. And I would uh, suggest that if this is something uh, that, uh, if it doesn't pass and, and you still think it should be done, then I think the appropriate place to look at something like this is at, at service review uh, in the fall. Other discussion or debate on the motion? Councillor Canning? I won't support the motion either, but, but for a slightly different reason. I, I would prefer for us to go through this entire process with the surplus and with the mill rates and kind of see where, where all the dust settles first before we, we, we discuss uh, some sort of rebate program because at that point we'll have a much better idea of what, uh, what we're actually looking at as it relates to the tax increase. Thank you. Discussion or debate? Councillor Oliver? Um, th this is interesting that this would come up today because I've actually been doing a little bit of research on on this myself um, and it was because um, I was curious but also about a week ago someone mentioned to me that there was a rebate program in a community in BC and so I wanted to find out what that was but it, to the best of my research it's a provincial program um, that they uh, have assistance with it's a tax deferment program so it's not it's not that you don't pay the tax at some point, it's just that it's deferred. It's done by the province uh, and it's age-based, uh, 55 or older, uh, surviving spouse of any age or a person with disabilities. So th those, those are people who may qualify and then there's further steps to go through. But then um, the deferment would be, you know, I, I don't know whether it's when they sell the property uh, or or how that's, and whether it's only homeowners, I, I don't know who it applies to. I think Ms. Garretts has some information on that program. Yes, the province of Alberta does have a seniors property tax deferral program. Oh, for education tax? Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> um, eligibility, however, isn't, is not based on income. Um, so there are a number of qualifiers. You can look at the website, um, but definitely to, el to be eligible, you have to be 65 years of age or older. Um, you must be an Alberta resident, you must own a residential property in Alberta, and your home must be your primary residence, and you must have a minimum of 25% equity in your home. Um, and then it would be, it is like a home equity line of credit, um, but information on that is, is on the Alberta government website. Oh, good to you know. So there is a provincial program that our residents could access if they qualified. Thank you. Councillor DeMano? Thank you. I think cost of living and affordability is something we've taken very seriously this term with things like TINU and making it a big part of our strategic plan. And for me, I like to see the decisions that we make affect the community as a whole, and I think we've been really good at doing that. So my worry with this would be that it, it would just help a few and not, and not a lot of people. So I, I really don't want to go down this road. I, I think a fair way of doing it is looking at the surplus, which we did during service review, and I'm happy to do again uh, when it comes forward in April. Thank you. Councillor Oliver, I'm going to let you close. Can, can I ask, uh, Ms. Garretts, if the knowledge of that Alberta program, and it's funny when I was searching the Alberta program, didn't come up, but the BC one did, um, is widely known within our senior homeowner community? Because maybe we just need to help with communications on that. 
Um, our senior support coordinator does absolutely provide information um, for clients or individuals who um, are, are coming in to see her. Um, certainly, um, promotion and marketing of various programs is never a bad idea, and so um, potentially we can use all the avenues uh, at our disposal to, to remind individuals that that is there. Um, there are packages of information available in the FCSS office and the seniors coordinator does have those as handouts. They are at 101 Bear Street. They are at uh, various seniors residences in town but um, as uh, as always we can we can continue to push the information or, or do an added, uh, provide some added emphasis on that if yeah. council would like. I, I, I really support that idea because you know, some of the conversations I've had are people who I believe are not talking to the seniors coordinator and who are not active at, at 101 Bear Street, the seniors uh, society there. And so they may not be privy uh, to that information. And, and so to get that out, I think makes good sense. Thank you. Any other further comments before I let Councillor Christensen close debate on his motion? Councillor Christensen? Thank you, Mayor Swanson. I, I just wanted to point it out point this out that this is a motion to explore and I didn't set a time frame uh, I think even if it comes up in service for you that would be appropriate already in our exploratory discussions uh, council has been made aware that the province has a rebate that we weren't aware of so we need to offer our taxpayers who are facing a 10.4 percent increase some further explanation <clears throat> some way of decoupling us as town from the province's increases, we have to do everything we can. And that's why I want to uh, promote this motion. Uh, I could set, the, I could set a, a time frame as it comes back at service review. That's fine, but we have to have something in motion to explore this further. It comes back at service review. Okay, um, sorry. Mr. Gibson, were you going to comment? Uh, sorry, ship. Okay. So, okay. I thought you had your finger okay. on the button and we're. Yeah. So, the motion is before you. Uh, Councillor Christensen, are you amending your motion to what uh, Ms. McDougall's writing in here now during the to committee during the 2021 service review? Thank you. Yes. That, that, that so, just so I'm clear on that, that they bring information back by the service review or that we talk about it at the service review? Like, what, what I'm not sure what this, I don't. Well, I would expect this brought back so All right. uh, okay so the motion is before you uh, I uh, will call the question all in favor opposed that fails three th three three uh, that being said Councillor Christensen I'm happy for you to bring it back at service for you or other people are might want to talk about it in in April um, all right uh, I think are there any other questions for mr. Hughes at this point when we're done with mr. Hughes you get to pee <laughs> uh, are there any other questions for uh, Mr. Hughes? Seeing none. Now, we're about to go discuss sewers, so I suggest we all go and try the product <laughs> and see how that uh, works, and we will come back and talk about the sewer bylaw. I'll call a 10-minute recess. Thank you.
We're back. Uh, items, what I, 6.1 is the Banff Sewer System Bylaw, uh, which has been uh, waiting for our attention for a few meetings. Where did the boys go? <laughs> Pardon? Oh, there you are. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right, thanks. Uh, hi, Mr. Godfrey. Good morning. Uh, Mr. Moray continues to be absent, so standing in for him. And I also have uh, uh, Troy Murray on my side here. He is our water services maintenance inspector, and he's also uh, got some uh, bylaw services. Thankfully, you're back. I'm <laughs> and John Abelseth, who's one of our water services foremen. So we are back in front of you today to discuss proposed changes to uh, BAMP Sewer System Bylaw 7.4. I just wanted to remind Council that the bylaw in its current state isn't broken. It just hasn't been uh, addressed or updated in a number of years, so it's an appropriate time now. We're going to walk through a number of the proposed changes. There are, there are six kind of headers in particular, and we'll go through each one. We're not in a rush. Uh, if you have a question at the particular time, please just let me know and we'll address it. And Mr. Murray will endeavor to um, kind of keep the appropriate page on the screen in front of you. So things that we're going to be talking about today are general language of the bylaw and definitions. We'll also be clarifying the connection requirements. Um, we'll be defining the sanitary dump and the wastewater treatment plant lagoon terms of use. Updating the requirements for fog. I'll remind everybody that fog is fats, oil, or grease. Uh, and the requirement for inter fog interceptors. Adding the right to require the installation of pretreatment system by the user and finally adjusting penalties. So we'll start with amendments to the definitions. Um, so the definitions, um, we've added, uh, we, we we're proposing to add a number of different definitions to the, uh, to the bylaw. Um, and I'm going to start with one that isn't on the list there, but it's called biological substances. And uh, so, tr well, we can come to that later. But biological substances, fees and charges by law, fog is now identified. Um, harmful substances is one that I'd like to go to. And Troy, I see that you're there already. So harmful substances is a very, um, it's a collector for a number of things that are deemed to be uh, non-beneficial to the system. So I, I wanted to go over a couple in particular. And when we go into Schedule A, which is an entire page of harmful substances, um, they have the regular things that you would expect, uh, substances that cause adverse effect, or petroleum, or solvents, or things like that. But I wanted to bring your attention to H, which is um, a, so a solid or viscous substance in a quantity or of such size as to be capable of causing restriction or obstruction to the flow of the sewer system, and so including ashes, bones, grains, cinder, sand, mud, straw, shavings, metal, glass, rags, wipes, feathers, tar, plastic, wood, garbage, animals, animal parts, animal feces, and blood. I know that's a long list, and a lot of it doesn't sound like it's really appropriate, but each and every one of those is appropriate to the proposed changes of this bylaw. Um, I wanted to draw your attention to a couple in particular. Uh, one would be grains. 
So we typically are silent in our bylaw relative to grains. And we are finding that there are new industries in town that use a lot of grain and they're using the sewer system as the disposal. Just to give you an idea of actually what happens, the grains are of such a size and density that they literally, uh, the spent grains from a brewer, uh, literally just go through the sewer system, they go to the wastewater treatment plant, they pass through our six millimeter screens, and then they settle out in our grit separator. And so the waste from the grit separator goes straight to the garbage. And so really all we're doing is we're, we're expending all of this energy to have the grains just literally end up in the garbage. And so what we're proposing is to prohibit the entry of grains into the sewer system. And just either put them into the organics bin, uh, which would be ideal, then we can repurpose them. Other ones would be uh, rags and wipes, which we've talked to council about a number of times. We've had a number of backups and obstructions and surcharges relative to rags and wipes. And one that um, may or may not be an issue is the blood. And that would be, there is an abattoir in town. Um, so I don't know the amount of blood. I don't know at this particular time where the end place for the blood is in the abattoir, but it, it upsets our wastewater treatment plant. So that is, that's, Definitions. Uh, uh, Councillor Oliver's got a question for you. This is, um, I've often wondered when I'm collecting after my dog if it would make sense to take that home and flush it <laughs> rather than dispose of it, but this says no. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. And animal feces are different from human feces? Yes. Okay. I, I can't explain the microbiology. Nor do we want you to. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Good to know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, go ahead. So Mr. Uh, another uh, another definition uh, worth pointing out uh, would be pretreatment system, and a pretreatment system. It, it, it. Yeah, sure. Sorry, Councillor Poole, go ahead. Uh, thanks. Just before we go on, I really I applaud you for the overall effort to uh, update harmful substances. Two or three areas that I'm curious about. Um, uh, first, you mentioned the abattoir. I presume that's uh, Parks Canada's abattoir. Is that's that correct. what we're Okay, thanks for clarification. Um, uh, secondly, uh, over the past uh, many years, there have been concerns about harmful substances from the standpoint of not our sewage treatment system, but from the receiving water body. Has Parks Canada's fisheries biologist had a chance to chat with you about any of this list of harmful substances? We haven't offered it up for review. So uh, as we precede and we're at Governance and Finance Committee, um, I would request that, from my perspective, that, that we ask the specialists in Parks Canada if there are any items that we might want to think of that we haven't included here. So what we've done, what you've done so well is 
say these are the things that are causing us a lot of extra operational work. Um, and as you mentioned with grains, there's a lot of good reasons for us to ask the business to divert some substances earlier. Um, that's in keeping with our whole overall environmental goals. Then part of our environmental goals also relate to how to protect the park, and that's why I thought that if we ask them what their thoughts are nowadays, that might be relevant. Okay, I'll draw your attention to um, uh, Schedule A, which is on your screen in front of you, and then if you look at uh, Section D, where it is, says, a substance prohibited by the Canadian Water uh, Quality Guidelines for the Protection of Aquatic Life and Canadian Sediment Quality um, Guidelines, for the protection of aquatic life by um, CCME. So when we were, we were anticipating, um, you know, inclusion of Parks Canada and all that, and that's one of the reasons why we had put in that overarching statement as well, that uh, if it is deemed to be um, not acceptable by CCME or the uh, water quality guidelines, then it would not be acceptable for us. And, and that makes, perfect sense at a provincial level in a national park, there may be just a, a, a slightly higher standard of performance and not being aware of the details of those two standards. Uh, that's the reason why I'd like us to get the input from Parks Canada if we could. No, that's, that's good, Carolyn. Okay, uh, next we'll move on to, I'll just see if there's any other ones. Pre-treatment uh, was where I left off. Pre-treatment system in this particular context, we're referring to either a grinder, like a, an inline grinder, or a screen in particular, and that's to stop harmful substances such as rags or wipes or other deleterious material. Uh, septage, all we're doing in that one is we're, we're defining uh, that it is something removed from an RV vehicle or a bus septic tank. And um, now we can move on. Are there any questions with regards to definitions? Or Go ahead, Councillor. Oh, I had a question just around interceptors and pretreatment systems, but I can ask that later. If yeah, we will be going okay. into that. So we're just, yeah. So we're doing de any other questions Defin on yeah. definitions? Yeah, I think yeah. Go ahead, Councillor Oler. Um, this comes to pre-interceptor and new sewer connections and things too, where the definition of development is very, very comprehensive and includes something like a sign, uh, which could then require you to put a new sewer line in. Like it just, because and maybe I should ask that at the, the later part, but. That's certainly not the intent. Um, to, the intent of this is if a developer is, and Mr. Watson spoke to it earlier in this agenda, uh, if, an, if a developer is intending on tearing down a building that's, say, 40 or 50 years old, we're proposing that at that time that the main or the sewer line to the main be replaced in its entirety as okay. part of the development. And, and, and that's to the uh, town manager's discretion. Thank you for clarifying that because I was reading it, interpreting it out of somebody puts a balcony in or does work on their deck or, you know, because it seemed to include that in the definition of development that they would be required to put a new sewer line in. No, the intention is, our expectation is that the sewer line would likely be in the same condition 
as the building that has been warranted to tear down. Got it. So thank if you're you. Tearing that, down a 50-year-old building, you've likely got a 50-year-old sewer line. That helps me very much. Thank you. All right, we're okay to move on from definitions, Councillor Poole. No, I'm, I'm picking up on Councillor Demano, uh, Councillor Oliver's thought. This definition that includes um, as a, a copy and paste from the land use bylaw reference to definite to development. When I read that under on page 18 of 84, and then I read on page 21 of 84, 4.4, which is the intent as you described, Mr. Godfrey, when I try and link those two in my mind, uh, the former development being so expansive in definition, including the cutting and removal of trees, if that's what a development is, and then under 4.4, at the time of development of a property, you've got to replace the sewer line. Absolutely. So, so, so we've got a problem with that definition, it seems to me. I wonder if the town, if, if that could be reconciled before it comes back to Without question. Council. And this is the opportunity during this, um, during this session that we can have the back and forth and uh, okay. you can let us know what you're uncomfortable with and administration is happy to go back and refine. All right, thanks, Councillor Poole. Any catch. other comments at this point yeah. on definitions? Okay, I think we can move forward to the next topic. Well, the next topic I think we've discussed now in general, which is clarifying connection requirements. Right. So we will come back with, uh, we'll come back with refined definitions. But the intent is if you're, if you look at the last kind of section of the definition, that's really the intent. If you're changing the land use or you're tearing down the building, the expectation is the town manager would then have discretion on saying, okay, we, as part of the development, you're going to need to put in a new uh, service connection. All right. So is everybody comfortable in the connection section at this point? Yes. I really like this description because I did interpret it as if you put a sign up, you might have to do your sewer line. Yeah. Sorry okay. for the confusion. Yeah. No. All good. Um, next one we're going to talk about is the sanity dump or the sanitary dump in the wastewater treatment plant lagoon. So we just wanted clarification in in the bylaw. So. Um, we do have a sanitary dump, an RV dump, a, a bus dump over by the dog park, and it will still be there, but we want a clarification on who is allowed to dump there. So septic tanks from an RV or septic tanks from a bus will continue to be allowed to dump there. All others will be restricted. And the same goes for the wastewater treatment plant lagoon. So we have had people, um, because it's, an, it's essentially an honor system at the uh, Sandy Dump, we, uh, we have had people who have dumped things there that we wish they didn't. And this year in 2020, we are, uh, Water Services will be installing a semi-automated uh, water dump, or a Sandy Dump and water fill station at the same location. So my question or my comment is I, agree with the concept of wreck vehicles, RVs, and buses continuing to be allowed to uh, dump there. Do the buses get charged then because they're commercial? It's, um, again, it's an honor system. Okay. And, uh, you know, our office for the honorable closes at 4 o'clock. Okay. And the lineup for the Sandy I Dump bet. 
begins at 4 o'clock. <laughs> right, right. So, so we don't always collect from those? We don't always collect. Okay. And would an RV be expected to pay on the Islander system, or are they considered non-commercial so they're they, not ever expected to pay? They, they would be expected oh, to pay, okay. and I would say the majority of the tourists walk across the berm. Okay, good. Must give us All right. their money. So it's an honor system. We do the best we can to collect, but yes. uh, both are allowed to dump there. Yes, and the, and the revised uh, sandy dump and water fill will be like a card lock of some sort. All right. Uh, Councillor Christensen? Uh, Mr. Godfrey, are, are we anticipating another uh, sanitary dump to be installed at the Husky Station? I can't comment on that. I don't know if it was in the development permit or not. I, I thought initially in the discussion of, for uh, their service that they were going to provide one. I, I just wanted to get some I, clarification you know, on that. We I haven't don't, seen uh, any modeling. Yeah. I don't recall that. I recall maybe something about washing buses. I can't quite remember, but um, I don't I recall so. that. Yeah. But I think, to your point, I mean, Mr. Gibson can just jot that down and make sure when it comes back to Council that you're, you get clarity on that. Any other questions for you, Councillor Christensen? Uh, any other questions on where are we, Sandy Dump and Lagoon? Yeah, so we, we just want to ensure that uh, the town manager will have the, the discretion on whether or not we can allow uh, dumping at the wastewater treatment plant Lagoon. And we do on occasion if, we're, if we have a contractor in and we're flushing our sewer system and we're cameraing, we would allow them to dump, but we know exactly what's in the load. All right. Uh, next will be updating the requirements for the fog interceptors. Uh, this one's quite comprehensive in the fact that uh, uh, I'll remind Council that uh, your decision to allow water services to bring on a, a maintenance inspector has paid huge dividends. And we've, I don't know what we call it, Mr. Murray, we deputized or we we gave Mr. Murray the power of the bylaw where he could actually go in and enforce. And we've done a, a very comprehensive um, audit of the you know, food service establishments in town and things like that. And we're really starting to move the needle. But there are, you know, there's only so much education can do. And so we're, we're really at the next step. I mean, we've created communication materials and a toolkit for all the users. We've done a, a townwide grease audit, and now um, it's time to, you know, for council to consider some changes to the grease trap um, or the fog or the fog uh, interceptors. So some of the things that we're pro proposing to change is maintenance requirements. So currently, Mr. Murray will go in and he will ask to see the uh, the grease trap maintenance logs, and the way our current bylaw is worded it's fairly loose on they have to ensure that the they have to ensure that the um, they have continuous efficient operation at all times which is really how do you define that and um, a grease trap should always be the solid should be 25 percent or less than the volume of the grease trap itself and they could always come in at, it's 24%, it's 23%, it's this and that. So what we're proposing is that uh, we would like to see maintenance. The, um, the town of Banff is different than other, uh, other municipalities. We have such a broad food service industry here and so much um, grease generation. We'd like to see maintenance. I think we're, we're calling for uh, weekly maintenance of the, of the um, 
of the interceptors and two years for uh, holding, pardon me, yeah, two years for records. So we'd like to see that. And Mr. Murray is seeing great things happening. Um, you know, like it's really cleaned up. There's been some commercial operators who have come in and, and they're providing service for the food service enterprises. Um, so we're seeing some benefit there. Uh, another thing that's fairly significant for this is we've identified things that we are going to uh, prohibit from using in the kitchens. And one in particular is enzymes. So you can't use enzymes, you can't use hot water, you can't use solvents, you can't use biological. And that is specifically, enzymes are sold to a food service enterprise as a way to make their kitchen run more efficiently. And the way they run more efficiently is the enzymes essentially have the opportunity to bypass the grease traps. And then it recongeals in the, in the town section. Um, we're not the, it's, you know, the town of Banff is the, isn't the only municipality that is prohibiting these. We did um, some, you know, a quick couple of searches. Calgary forbids it, Toronto forbids it, Vancouver, many different municipalities are prohibiting these now. Um, I don't know what else I was going to say about enzymes, but that is. And what we're finding, too, one question that you might have is what kind of impact could this have on a food service enterprise? And Mr. Murray has gone, and we've been talking about this for years, that enzymes are going to be prohibited in the future, and people are already starting to move off it. Um, he's finding that there are like 10% or, or very few people still use them and they're running through their inventory. So everyone knows it's coming. Councillor Canning, do you have a question on enzymes? Uh, no, not specifically <laughs> enzymes, but interceptors. Thanks. Um, what is the overall compliance as it relates to how many people have interceptors? Is there any full service restaurants in in Banff who have deep fryers, et cetera, that do not currently have a grease trap? Uh, there are currently a few that do not have them. I'm working with them to get them installed. Um, it's an ongoing process. One of the issues is, is that <clears throat> the way that the plumbing code is written is that any fixture that would receive fats, oils, and grease, so you could say a floor drain, a mop sink, dishwasher, dishwasher anything like that, would require an interceptor. So right now we're at the bottom level of the, the three compartment kitchen sink is typically where they get installed. But there are also many other avenues for grease sure. to get into the drain. So trying to approach it with an overarching, it's ideal if a new build would have say one large interceptor that would pick up all of the kitchen. Um, but right now we're, we're pretty close with compliance. I think we're at about 95% to the buildings that have a interceptor the problem is is that you might have one interceptor yeah. on a small sink and then nothing over there right so, so you, you may have it it's just not in the right place right and as far so as the system is concerned it's a it's a big picture thing too that we'll right have to deal with. It, i think you from my own personal experience you've done a tremendous job with the education side of this and, and certainly going around and, and educating people it, it's certainly a big part of it um and it's been very successful the is there anything in the bylaw and i went looking for this but i couldn't Quite, I couldn't find it. Is there anything in the bylaw about requiring restaurants to have these as opposed to just heavily encouraging them? 
And, and if it is a requirement, as you said, you're working with individuals or with businesses to try to get them implemented. But uh, is it, are you still kind of looking at this as, you know, we really need you to in the bylaw will? At what point in time do you sit there and say, okay, you have to do this? Um, the old bylaw definitely has, I'm going to have to find it right now and get uh, Troy to. Yeah, I, I couldn't find it either, so I apologize for that. But, uh, but that, that's one thought. And then um, the, uh, the other part of it, too, is, is, again, from my experience, there's different levels of food establishments. Some, obviously, are, are very much full service. They have full commercial kitchens with deep fryers. Others, you know, are more limited service, and they may not have those types of things. They might just be doing sandwiches or something along those lines. And so is there... Uh, what has the experience been from that side of the food service industry and did what type of precautions are being made at, at that end? Because if they don't have a deep fryer, they still might be dealing in grease, but they're less inclined to have an interceptor would be my guess. Uh, yeah, so when it comes down to fog, fats, oils, and grease, um, that could be pretty much in any food product. Um, one good example is a coffee shop. So you would say, well, I just sell coffee, which is mostly water and beans. But you've got the milk product that comes with that, which is a lot of fats. So every time that that cup gets rinsed, that milk product goes down the drain, it congeals and turns into fog. So as far as different levels, um, you could argue that Subway would only have veggies. Uh, but they have salad dressing containers, which would include fats so, and oils. So... I think that's why the industry has just painted all restaurants with the same brush, because you don't really know what they're using. It could be anything for food. So when you say 95% compliant, does that include the limited service or just more of the full-on commercial kitchens? Uh, that's restaurants, coffee shops. That's the whole bit right across the board. Okay, well, that's great. I, I, yeah. didn't, I wouldn't have thought the limited service side of it would have had as much. So I would have thought overall the compliance would have been less than that. Yep. Yeah. No, they're... they're definitely out there the problem is is getting them maintained well and and the cost of installing them too i imagine for a lot of small businesses it can be quite prohibitive to put a system like this on into their into their system and then capturing all the fixtures is another yeah, question absolutely further to uh councillor canning's query if you can just pull up to 5.8 of the existing uh it was in section 5.8 uh, where all appropriate and applicable, or where appropriate and applicable in the opinion of the director, uh, grease, oil, and sand interceptors shall be provided on a commercial, blah, blah, blah. And then at the end of it, where installed all grease, oil, and sand interceptors shall be maintained. So there was that requirement since, um, well, this, this bylaw goes back to 1997. No, that's fair. That's great. Thank you very much, Mr. Godfrey. All right. Uh, other comments from you, Mr. Godfrey, on uh, interceptors? You're good? Councillor. Okay, Councillor Oliver and then Councillor Poole. Thanks. When I read over the list in 5.8, it was interesting to me because there weren't surprises there, kind of, because I thought, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. But when it came to amalgam, I didn't realize that was uh, a challenge. It's uh, mercury. Amalgam would be from a, a dental office, right? Uh, well, yes, because it has mercury in it. Yeah, of course, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Councillor Poole? Um, just a, a query. If, 
this bylaw is going to be a great improvement. If for a few of the remaining establishments that don't yet have interceptors in the manner that um, you might want them to have from your design understanding. If you think there's another option other than this bylaw for us to consider to uh, engage with those businesses to get them to where we'd want to be, that would be outside this bylaw, but I would encourage you to offer us suggestions along the way. Because if sometimes one or two businesses can make a real big problem, not necessarily intentionally, but just by the structure of their business. And if we wait for 20 or 30 years for it to be renovated properly, that may not be in our public interest. So if along the way, outside this bylaw, you think there's merit in that, I'd certainly welcome hearing your thoughts. Well, Mr. Murray has seen some great compliance. He's got a, a, a number of good stories, and unfortunately, all it takes is for your restaurant to back up a couple of times, and uh, Troy has your attention, right? And so they work diligently on ensuring that their restaurants aren't kind of shut down because of grease backups. And a, a recent one with the uh, one of the larger properties in town, they've just gone through and they've redone seven of their kitchens. Yeah. So, I mean, they've spent a significant amount of money. How many, 20, 22, new 22 new interceptors on one property. Wow. Hmm. So we are moving the needle. We still have a ways to go. Go ahead, Councillor Roy. I just wanted to, to check with you. Uh, under 5.8, you mentioned uh, at the discretion of uh, the director, but it actually says at the uh, Direct, uh, town manager, did you? Was it supposed oh, to say director? Sorry, I was reading from the red. I was reading for Councillor Canning. I was giving him reference when he was suggesting that he couldn't find it in the. I, I believe he was talking about the existing bylaw. So I was reading from the existing bylaw. Oh, thank bylaw. you. Thank you. Okay. All right. Are we okay to move on from inceptors? Right. I see it. All right. The <laughs> next. Uh, the next subject is. Uh, the potential for adding the right to require installation of pretreatment, a pretreatment system by the user. And this is one where, it, again, it would be the town manager's discretion, but we have had instances in the past where some establishment, um, due to uh, instances outside their control, have had significant sanitary surcharges because of rags and wipes and things like that. And what uh, this, or this bylaw is proposing is if we have situations like that, that the town manager would have the discretion to require a pre-treatment uh, pre system to be installed on private property. And that could mean a grinder, which isn't, a grinder is okay, but it's still just smaller wipes and rags, uh, or a screen, which is a little more difficult to operate, but that's what that has to do with. Go ahead, Councillor Oliver. Thanks. Um, I noticed in the uh, report part that it said pre-treatment systems are expensive. You yes. know, and so um, 
I did also note in the report part the incredible history that we've had in going through uh, this process of identifying the problem and education and voluntary cooperation and more education and inspections and bringing on Mr. Murray. So we've gone, a, a, like I, I think we've done a very uh, thorough job in, in education and letting people understand the importance. You know, I, I think of the displays we've had at the Connect um, uh, evenings where there is a, a fog table <laughs> that you know you could come by and you could see like residential or commercial your your impact. Uh, so, but the pretreatment system is. Um, you know, where would it be located and, and like the cost would be significant and then the maintenance of it. Um, so it, it really seems like this is the big guns, right? And so how do you really identify what property is causing the problem? Because it would apply to residential or commercial developments, right? Yes, that, that's true. But in this particular case, um, we're in, more interested in non-residential. And how would we know? One of the services that Water Services conducts on a regular basis is little fishing expeditions. And believe it or not, it's standing over a manhole with a screen and capturing from um, businesses what exactly is going through the pipe. And it's really quite easy to, it's, if we have a dedicated pipe to a business, it's very easy. Mm, we can just start fishing and the rags just start coming and we go, okay, we know this pipe goes to that building, therefore it must be connected. Right. Um, we, unfortunately, not all businesses have dedicated lines. Okay. So, but we do work with, like for example, the same, um, the same business that put in 22 new uh, grease interceptors also went and took out all the hand uh, paper towel dispensers in all of their bathrooms because we, when we were fishing, we were finding paper towels. Oh, there. So okay. they yanked all, and that, that was immediate. They just bang, they're gone, they put in blowers. And so, you know, we work with them, we work with some mm -hmm. of the businesses that are outside the town of Banff as well to help them with that. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I guess if you're a hotel property, you can do everything you can to educate your staff on how they dispose of things and remove paper towels, but you can't control what happens in the rooms. That's correct. And yeah. there is hope that, you know, the, uh, the industry, the water industry globally, I mean, they're, they're, they're pushing back against the manufacturers. I mean, you still see it in, um, in Save-On and Sobeys and things like that. You still see where it actually says flushable. Like mm -hmm. you might get a, a Lysol brand disinfectant wipe that's flushable. Um, if it didn't cut, you know, basically, if it didn't come out of your body, we don't really want it in the pipe. Right, okay. Thank you. All right. Uh, other comments, either from Mr. Godfrey or Council on pre-treatment? I think we're good to move forward to harmful substances. Okay. Um, okay. Is that what, I'm sorry. Is that so what you're doing? You go in your order. Yeah, that's okay. Um, I think we've we've managed uh, harmful substances. I wanted to talk about penalties now. Okay. okay. Can I just ask a question on harmful sure. substances? Just because of your um, comment on change in language, which used to be noxious or offensive material in the vicinity of any intake in the sewer system, oh, yes. and then you've changed it to 
in the sewer system, so I get all that. Is there any benefit to using both in the sewer system or the vicinity of? I potentially. Yeah, I guess because we used to say, I assume the vicinity is still a concern. Anyway, I, that was my thought when okay. I read it. I'm like, and I'm not saying you need to do it, but if there is a concern, if something is dropped in the vicinity as well as in, just use both. Okay. You know. <laughs> There's my logical brain. Go ahead, put, some, put somebody. <laughs> um, we chose like to move it from the vicinity to into the sewer system for the simple reason that something could be spilled, let's say, uh, three feet from a sewer intake or a grate, and then it doesn't really affect our system. Okay. I, I bow to your expertise. That was just when I was reading it from a <laughs> non-educated brain on this topic. I bow well. Is it bad if it goes in the vicinity? So I'll leave that up to you guys. Uh, okay, are we good to move on to penalties? All right, let's talk penalizing. <laughs> um, ed education and toolkits only go so far. At some point, uh, we have to have a little more encouragement to comply. And so what we've demonstrated here is, uh, and you'll see it in the report, is uh, we went out to a number of different communities and they, all we're trying to do with this table that we put in was to demonstrate fairness. So we've included Airdrie, Beaumont, Canmore, Wetaskiwin, Calgary, Lacombe, and St. Albert in what their penalties look like. And um, so you'll see changes in most of them, if not all of them. And if you have any questions relative to that, I'm happy to discuss. Councillor Oliver. Thank you. I do have a question on this. Um, the minimum penalty, that I'm assuming that would be like first time, right? You're going to do the minimum. And then second and subsequent, uh, there's a significant jump, as there should be. But how often, is it every week they get issued a second or subsequent? Or is it daily? Or does it depend on what the issue is? I just didn't understand the frequency of the second and subsequent. Currently, the frequency, even on a penalty, we, we are still working the communication and the toolbox. Education is key here. We want to ensure that we've done everything before we go punitive. So we've, we haven't issued a penalty yet. Okay, thank you. Other questions on penalties? Councillor Poole. Um, related to uh, sections 8.2 and 8.3, if I could, which is on page 26 above. Yeah, the first 8.2, the language there is sort of old-fashioned legalese. I wonder if we can update that to uh, plain language in the manner that is set out in our policy regarding trying to, when we update these bylaws, let's try and put plain language in there. Um, and then 8.3, uh, could you explain this concept? Because I... Um, I think I understand, but I'd just like to hear your explanation how it relates to the table, the schedule that you were just on. Uh, this would be applicable in the instance when there's no penalty that are specifically associated with like a section. So if it's kind of a catch-all net that we put in a bylaw to ensure that if there was some ways that we uh, would levy a fine against someone, we could go to this um, 
to this section in order to establish what kind of fee would be applicable. And uh, the, that's helpful. And in this, we have the, the words plus costs. Um, does that mean whatever overhead costs that we would have to do to figure out something? Or, you know. Uh, it could also be our cleanup costs. Oh, our cleanup costs. costs. Yes. Okay. And dependent, dependent on the type of offense. If it was a spill, we would assume that they would pay the cost to clean. So, so are those costs also um, charged in addition to the penalties for those specific penalties? Yes. So on the penalty, could you take me to the penalty schedule where it shows that? Because that, that was the part I was a little bit confused about, how they relate to one another. So let's give you, let's give you an example, like a penalty on Schedule B, like if you go to Pen to 5.8, where it says failing to install, maintain, inspect, or repair an interceptor. Let's say someone committed an offense on that, did not repair, like this in a state of disrepair, and grease is flowing and causing some kind of blockage that would, I don't know, cause like, you know, um, damage in the property or in the building. That would be an example where that would be applicable. So we would find them for the act itself, but they would have to pay also for repairs. That, that makes sense. I just didn't see in the bylaw where the plus costs is described for these Oh, I see what you penalties. mean, adding, adding a section where it would be clearly indicated that they will have to. It uh, seemed to me that we've got, we're cost. charging for things that are not in the bylaw, we're charging costs, and for those things that we've got a schedule of penalties, we haven't yet figured out how to charge costs in, in the wording. But that was, then maybe I misread it, but if you could check into that. Um, um, I believe that it would be like 8.7. Uh, in addition to any other remedy available to the town for non-compliance with this bylaw, the town may correct the violation and the costs incurred therefore shall be paid to the town upon demand and failing payment may be collected as a debt due to the municipality. Yeah, maybe it's just that that's so, maybe, maybe I had a hard time reading and understanding that. Maybe we've got it, maybe there's a way to make it clearer. I'd, I encourage you to look at that. So it's, you know, if I've, if I've gone and I've left a big dump and I don't really know and I say, oh, it's cheaper for me to leave this dump and pay 200 bucks than to, you know, hire somebody to clean up and then you say, oh, now you, I've cleaned it up for you, so you've got to pay the cleanup cost plus this. I look and I say, show me where it is in the bylaw. And it's not all that easy to find in the bylaw. But I, I, I'm glad you've got it. Thank we'll you very much. Yeah, thank you. Any other questions on penalties? Seeing none. Mr. Godfrey. Other comments from you? No, that concludes what we wanted to discuss with you. Council, any other questions left burning on your document that need answers? On, Councillor Poole. On penalties for the uh, sanitary uh, trap that we have, uh, I'd like to understand a little bit more about how the honour system has worked and the buses. We have some buses that are uh, parked regularly locally and then we have some buses that come in from distance um, I guess we don't want free riders and that's the main thing will this bylaw stop that free riding behavior do you think
it would be a semi-automatic card lock system, which would restrict dumping unless you're you've paid or you're you're in the system. And uh, the honor system, um, yes, we don't have great compliance, to be perfectly honest. And uh, I could draw um, uh, a comparison to when we had an honor system for the um, drop-off yard at the operations uh, center. Um, it was an honor system there, and we were collecting in the hundreds of dollars a year. Now we're in well, hundreds of thousands of dollars. So, so, so then should I be... Um, I, I was thinking that the sanitary dump station uh, penalty might be low, but I'm less concerned about whether it's low or high if we're solving this problem. And what I'm gathering is we're going to solve the problem and so we don't have to worry so much about what, what's the rate and the schedule. We believe that to be Okay, true. thanks. All right, any final questions for Mr. Godfrey? Councillor Christensen? Uh, Mr. Godfrey, branching off into a different uh, uh, line of question here, uh, under, under 5.0 to responsibilities? On connecting to mains and and uh, doing repairs, is there a, is there a provision or any thought given to having having a uh, independent third party to uh, assess uh, any controversial uh, uh, debates on on location of damages and and uh, damage to connection valves? Uh, just thinking in the past, there's been uh, some uh, residences that have been uh, assessed fees for the responsibility and some debate on the, uh, uh, on the previous damage. And I use the case of uh, 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 Ron Tessalini, who uh, presented to the community. Has there been any, uh, just using that as an example, I think everything went well and was, and was decided, but has there been any provision in the in the uh, uh, bylaw to consider having a, uh, a, a uh, independent means of, of adjudicating or assessing those problems? That's typically the way it's done. Um, we, if the Town of Banff Water Services team can't camera the system or do a uh, do, you know, do an assessment as you suggest, or we do bring in a third party and a homeowner or a business owner is always able to bring in their own, you know, get their own opinion. Typically, when you were talking about Mr. Tessalini, that's a water system and it was relative to a valve. There aren't any valves in this yeah, system. I, I understand. But uh, one thing that may, you know, one thing that we've run into a couple of times are tree roots. Yeah. And that's still something that you know, it's difficult to pinpoint which tree it is, where did it come from, these types of things. And that emphasizes, and that's another reason why we would like, at time of redevelopment, to put in a new pipe. Because we're finding that it's the older pipe, the clay tile pipes, that we're getting this kind of intrusion. But back to your original question, the homeowner or the business owner always has the opportunity to have third party come in. And, and it's done regularly.
It may not be required because the bylaw is clearly stating that from the property line to the property is the responsibility of the owner. Okay. And I just use Mr. Castellini as an example of that kind of debate. I understand the water situation. We refer to it as the Tessalini Clause. Clear enough to uh, to everyone. That's fine with me. I just wanted to make sure. All right. Any other questions for Mr. Godfrey? Councillor Oliver. I took advantage of this um, time to just scroll through my document to look for any unmentioned points. And under harmful substances, I, I think um, pharmaceuticals have been added for the first time. I don't know that they were there before. So unused or waste pharmaceuticals, and it's it's in interesting to see that because they can't be filtered out or taken out through the wastewater treatment plant process. So if people flush their drugs thinking that they're, you know, disposing of them appropriately, actually they're just introducing them into the the river, you know, because there is no filtration at the water plant that takes them out. But that would only apply to, like, flushing a, a drug, shaking it out of your container, you know, not, not in any way to ones that your body filters out and then goes into the system. Is that correct? That's absolutely yeah. correct. And, <laughs> and you always have the opportunity to take unused medications to a drugstore and they'll, they'll dispose of it. Just as an interesting sidebar, uh, I know that there was a study done on the wastewater treatment plant in Seattle and the level of caffeine that's going through there, going through their plant is having an impact on aquatic life. Oh, isn't that interesting? Thank you. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I think it really aggressive. <laughs> All right. Any other questions for Mr. Godfrey? Thank you so much, Mr. Godfrey. Appreciate it. Uh, as we've all experienced, uh, I know this can sort of add an element of work, but we also hope that maybe it actually takes an element of work away uh, by when, when these things come to council, because you've already heard from us. Um, we have... Uh, I have a general query sort of to, to you and to town manager, I suppose. When we're doing a big revision like this, um, we might end up creating little wrinkles that are unintended. Um, and you might... I think we do that a lot, regardless. <laughs> and you might end up you know, having this sort of a bylaw on a, on a review schedule once every 15 years. But the wrinkles you might catch in the first six months or something. If you catch some wrinkles, do we have a process of doing quicker feedback amendments, or do we wait for 15 years? No. So first of all, it would be a five-year um, review timeline. And yes, if we if we amend a bylaw and find that we're having a, a problem or or an unintended consequence comes out of it, we would bring it back to council right away and ask for a small uh, amendment and and give the reasons for that. All right. Uh, if there's nothing else, thanks again, Mr. Godfrey. Uh, we have no items for eight. We're looking for some direction. Oh, sorry. Look at me. Sorry. Can I get a motion? As Thank you, Mr. Godfrey. Forgot that part. Um, can I get the motion in 6.1? Anybody? Thanks, Councillor Oliver. Okay. So as, uh, as uh, it says on your document, the motion has been made. Uh, perfect. Uh, any discussion or debate on the motion? All in favor? 
Thank you. All right. Sorry about that, Mr. Murphy. Okay, now we have no uh, items on 8, 9, or 10, but I'm in this quandary because Councillor Standish isn't here. So I don't know how to adjourn the meeting. Okay. So I'm going to stand back here. Motion to adjourn. Oh, Peter was pretty quick. I'm going to go with Councillor Cool. All in favor? Thank you. If you're feeling left out, there's still the opportunity this afternoon.